0: Wednesday night I was in our new facility over here just to the side and um, it's where our youth and children hang out. And I thought well I'll go over there and um, just you know make an appearance and hang out with the youth for just a bit. And I hadn't had much to eat on Wednesday when I got over to the building and so I was kind of hungry and I noticed that the kids had a lot of food. I mean, right? They just just overflowing. and They didn't need all that. And so um, I, I saw this chocolate cake. My eyes were just drawn to that chocolate cake. And I was so hungry, I could have eaten the cardboard that it was on. I mean, I was really hungry. So I, was like, I just want a piece of that chocolate cake. And, and graciously, one of the youth leaders offered me a piece of that cake. And, and I took it and I took my fork and I began to eat it and I hear one of the kids, who I won't name, say these words, Pastor Thad, you're too old to be in here. (laughs) Not are you enjoying the cake, not do you want another piece. So, I'm going to talk to the youth leaders about that whole love and encouragement piece. <laughs> Maybe we could teach these kids, right? All right, guys, we got a lot to cover. And if you're willing to, we could hang out all afternoon. There's a lot to go through this morning. And I want to ask you, begin by asking you this question this morning Are you in awe of God? Now, careful how you answer that, right? You need to put some thought into that. I found as a person that I've been in awe of a lot of things in my life. I've been able to travel a good bit around the United States, and, and I've walked upon the Grand Canyon, and my eyes have seen, and my jaw drops down. And I've, I've been to Niagara Falls, and, and my eyes have seen, and my jaw drops down, and I'm like, Wow. And those are incredible sights. If you have the opportunity to go, you know that, right? You've seen those. And when you first see it, I'll never forget I read this story about a, an Asian man who was trying to describe what he saw in terms of Niagara Falls. And he, he said, There were no words. And I think, Well, that's great. And, and we see God's creation, and there are no words. But how about our awe of Him? Are we in awe of Him? And I want us to think about that the next week or two as we continue our series in Second Peter. And I think it will all connect. Hopefully the dots will connect and you'll understand why I asked you that question. Paul Tripp, in his book, A Dangerous Calling, wrote these words, When all of God is absent, it is quickly be replaced by all of ourselves. Now, I want you to think about that. When all of God is absent, it is quickly replaced by all of ourselves. Would you say, without a doubt, that our culture is in love with themselves? Right? And I'm looking at that, and I'm studying this, and I'm thinking about what took place on that Mount of Transfiguration. And I couldn't help but come to the conclusion that Peter was in awe of the Lord. And, I, and as I've studied it and uh, I've rustled through all the cracks and crevices of this, of this wonderful story we have, I'm just like, wow. He and James and John along with Moses and Elijah saw the glory of the Lord as he will be in his kingdom. You say, well, we don't, here's the good part. We don't have to wait to be in awe of the Lord until then. We can be in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ right now, and we should be. Did you just listen to the songs that we sang? Are you in awe of the Lord? Paul Tripp goes on to write: Familiarity with the things of God may cause you to lose your awe. I'll, I'll illustrate this way: um, As you study the Scriptures, are you not in awe of the Scriptures? in awe of the revelation that God has given and and yet I hear verses and and I've been guilty of it at times and and they're quoted and and I I know these verses and you know these verses and and yet sometimes but familiarity may be a hindrance for verses like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever does what believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life have you lost your awe of that (laughs) right God loved me so much God loved you so much that he gave I have to confess before you there's been times in my life certainly many where I've lost that and I would say the church today needs to recover their awe of the Lord the awe of his creation as we read about in Isaiah 40. This morning we're going to get to the transfiguration, I promise. But I wanted to um, illustrate what went on. The term transfiguration, we get our word metamorphosis from that term, okay? And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But I wanted you to see kind of that, that process. I've asked you that question, but I want us to look at that video uh, that I have for you, it's an elementary education video, so it fits right. So no matter what your age, you'll be able to to get this. But it just kind of explains that whole process of metamorphosis. Take a look at this.
1: You're Butterflies are curious creatures. They begin their lives as caterpillars, hatching from their eggs to do little more than eat leaves. But then, a transformation takes place and they become beautiful, flying, nectar-drinking insects. Let's learn how a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. Caterpillars hatch from their eggs a few days after being laid and immediately begin eating almost all they do is eat and after a week or two the caterpillar is ready to begin its metamorphosis or transformation the caterpillar attaches itself to the underside of a stem or branch with a small mat of silk and hangs upside down in the shape of a jay inside its body underneath its skin the chrysalis is forming. It no longer needs its caterpillar skin, head, or legs, and so the chrysalis wiggles and twists until it splits and falls off. At first, the chrysalis is soft, but it soon hardens up to protect the developing butterfly inside. It takes about two weeks for the chrysalis to change into a butterfly. Two weeks in which almost all of the caterpillar's body is dissolved into a kind of soup which is remade into the shape of a butterfly. When the butterfly is ready to emerge, the color of its wings will be visible through the chrysalis. Let's watch another butterfly emerge from its chrysalis, this time more slowly. free of the chrysalis, the butterfly looks a bit strange. The wings are small, crumpled and wet, and its abdomen is swollen with fluid. The butterfly hangs upside down, pumping fluid into its wings to make them expand. Once the wings have reached their full size, the butterfly will wait until they are completely dry before flying off to find a flower to drink from. Few days, the butterfly will mate, lay new eggs, you're watching that, and right? the cycle. And I
0: watched that a couple of times. I was watching that this week. I thought, man, Lord, you're amazing. I mean, did you hear all the different things that were being said? The protection of the butterfly in that chrysalis? Did you, did you hear that? How it hardens? I, I was like, man, Lord, you're amazing. And, and that's what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter and, his, and the other disciples, James and John, Moses and Elijah, saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to remember where we are. So if, hopefully you're in Second Peter and chapter one, and I want to kind of review, to bring you up to the point to set the context, because I want to make some observations from, from the actual uh, transfiguration of the Gospels. Because there are a couple things said here in Second Peter about the transfiguration. But why in the world is Peter even having to discuss this issue in verses 16 through uh, 18 of Second Peter? Let's read that, and then I want to talk to you about the context. He says, "...for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ." but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. All right, that term there, majestic glory, has the idea of splendor, greatness. So he says, this utterance was made to him by the majestic glory, the Father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves, Peter said, heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Why in the world is Peter even having to discuss this? If you think about the first 14 verses... You remember in in, in 2 Peter that Peter is encouraging what in the lives of these believers? He's encouraging spiritual growth. You remember that? He talks about the importance of spiritual growth. He tells them they've been equipped to grow spiritually. Right? There's no reason to sit back and and cross our arms and say, Well, I'm saved and and that's great. but, But there's more to it. There's more to it. It's not just being saved. There's this thing called sanctification. And we need to give attention to the fact that God wants us to grow. And you remember that Peter told told his audience, he said, supply in your faith, right? Add in your faith, some translations have. Supply in your faith, moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. You remember that? And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And then he says, in your perseverance, godliness. And that's our relationship with God. Right, that's giving attention to to who he is and what he wants for our lives. Why is that so important? He says, because you need to supply, right, in your godliness, brotherly kindness. Ouch. Right, that's that whole vertical relationship. Lord, I need to focus on you and your holiness and what you desire for me because... I deal with the thing called the body of Christ. And did you know that we're all different? Did you know that? That we're all different, that we're all unique, that we all have a place. The Bible says God has placed each one in the body just as he purposed. Right? That's that's encouraging. Don't try to be somebody you're not. I see so many Christians trying to do that. Be who God made you to be. Right? Be content in that. And say, Lord, where is it you want me to minister in the body? And so Peter's telling these guys, hey, supply in your brotherly kindness then, he says, love. (laughs) So he goes from the relationships within the body, which are difficult. Right? Can Can I encourage you with something? This is a commercial. There are times in the body of Christ or you may have an issue with another brother or sister can I encourage you not to let that lie don't let it stay there you know what will happen man is going to fester and there's going to be bitterness and there's going to be strife and you know what's going to happen what's not going to affect anybody else wrong you know what's going to happen? It's going to affect. It's going to impact the body. And Unfortunately, over the years, I've heard many people say, oh, I, just, I just can't deal with that person. Well, hey, i encourage you. Go deal with them. They're your brother or sister in Christ. We're not to be like the world in that. So, so Peter's like, hey, look. Love your brothers, right? But then he says, love the world. Huh. Sometimes it's easier to love the world than it is to love our brothers. At least we know the world right where they're coming from. They're just pagans acting like pagans. You say, how in the world do you love your brothers? Well, that's pretty simply defined. What about loving the world? How do we show the world that we love them? You know how? We share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand on the word of God. You guys, listen. Listen. This is so important. As the disciples come to the end and, and, and the Lord tells them, right? I want you to go make disciples. You know what they did with that? You know what they did with that? They made disciples. They went out and shared the love of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it impacted them. It impacted them. And so, so he says, in your brotherly love, right? Supply love. Love for those around us that don't know Christ. And then you remember in Second Peter, he's like, hey, look, I'm committed to this stuff. I'm committed to reminding you. And the Lord had, re- had told him, his death was imminent. His departure, he uses that term departure, was imminent. Man, but what a commitment Peter makes. He's like, you look at verse 15. Here's the commitment made. He says, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. What things? The things he discussed. He was a committed apostle of Christ. And so then he kind of changes directions. But not completely. Because verse 16 answers his statement in 15. He says, verse 15, I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you may be able to call these things to mind. For, you could translate that because... In other words, all these things I've told you, they're not myths. They're not stories made up. Notice what he says. We did not what? Follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power, right, and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we looked at that and we were like, what in the world is Peter talking about? He's talking about the second coming. When Christ comes and he sets up his kingdom on earth and in his glory and he rules... And he reigns. There's no more of this stuff today. But he's ruling and he's reigning on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And he's judging in righteousness. Isn't that going to be grand? And so Peter's writing about that. He's saying, look, listen guys. The things that I've told you, the things I've written to you, right, which are recorded in First Peter about the second coming of Christ, the things I've said to you, they're true. They're true. He said, We did not follow cleverly devised tales. And so he's talking about the issue of the second coming. You remember last time we talked about in chapter three, verses three and four A, that mockers were there people who were trying to discourage him, saying, hey, where's the promise of his second coming? Hey, he isn't coming. But if those mockers could break down the doctrine of the second coming and say, he's not coming, then what else could they do? Everything else that Peter had told them was what? Null and void. Right? Everything else. So I look at our culture today and you say, well, should we defend all the doctrines? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because listen, guys, you know what happens? People are out there. Listen, they are trying to destroy the very foundation we stand on. We stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God. And we don't apologize. And some people say, well, Thad, how important is this doctrine? Well, Peter thought it was real important. And he wanted them to know, hey, look, we hadn't been following just anyone or any story. We made known to you the second coming of Christ. Man, we were followers of Christ himself. And we saw his glory as he would be in his coming kingdom. And I go, wow. And as great as that story is, as we're going to see, he even says in verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word more sure. <laughs> in other words, what I've already given to you and what we have, the Old Testament, it's sure. Sure. Right? And what are people looking to, to break down in our culture today? They want to break down the Word. Guys, listen to me. The Word of God can handle any criticism man may throw at it. Any criticism. Well, so you know me, right? I'm looking at this and I'm going, wow. So he made known to them the power and coming of the Lord as he's talking about the Lord and his future glory. And he writes about that. We looked at that last time in 1 Peter. Some of the examples there where he talked about it. And so as I'm digging through and I'm going, okay, well, what did Peter see? What did James see? What did John see? I couldn't help you. You got to go back to the Gospels. Right? You could just go, well, okay, let's deal with what he said. Well, we're going to... But you have to look at the event. It is an incredible, incredible true story that took place. Now, if you want to follow along, that'd be wonderful. Um, You could go to Luke's gospel in the uh, ninth chapter, but I wanted to let you know, just for your information, when you go home this afternoon and and you're wide awake after your nap, you're going to go, man, I really want to study Matthew and Mark too. Well, if you turn to Matthew, the 17th chapter, it tells you about the transfiguration there. And if you go to Mark chapter 9, it tells you about it there, Mark's account. But I wanted to make some observations, right? And um, it really starts, I know I told you to go to Luke. Will you forgive me? It'll stay in Luke, though. But will you forgive me if we go back to Matthew 16? Because I want to remind you of the setting of this particular doctrine, Right, So you go to Matthew 16 and you come to the end of chapter 16 and Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will recompense every man according to his deeds. And then he says, and here it is, Truly I say to you there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death. Until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I mean, how many of you have looked at that and the what in the world is he talking about? I bet mean, there are a lot of people out there that thought, what in the world is he talking Six days later, right? Six days later is the issue. And the issue is the transfiguration. They saw, Peter, James, John, Moses, and Elijah were there. Saw the future glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as he would be in his kingdom. So as I started studying that, I'm like, well, man, I've got to share these observations with these guys. I can't keep it to myself. So guess what I did? I made up this PowerPoint, this thing called PowerPoint, so that you could have it this morning. I want you to have what I studied, because I had such a fun time, it was just, I just had an awesome time. So hopefully you're going to have fun as we look at it. All right, I want you to note that in this particular story, there were three disciples that are accompanying Christ. You say, Thad, how big of a point is that? Well, I think it's a pretty big point. Because these three guys are named who? Peter, James, and John, all right? And it tells us in Luke chapter 9 that some eight days later, after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James. You say, Thad, what was so special about Peter, John, and James? I don't know. Do you have an answer? Do you know? I don't know. But I do know this, that the Lord at times set them apart. Do you know, back in Luke chapter 8, at the end of chapter 8, the Bible tells us that Jesus goes to the house of Jairus, where his daughter is ill, right? Dead, right? She is asleep, the the terminology that Luke uses. She's dead. And the Bible says, at the end of Luke uh, chapter 8, that Jesus goes to Jairus' house, and he raises his daughter, all right? He raises his daughter, but do you know who's in the room besides the Lord Jesus? Who does he call in there with him? Peter, James, and John. Well, then I go, okay, that's pretty incredible. Well, then I go, wow. But there's another incident in the New Testament where I remember it was Peter, James, and John. And that was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 39. And you know the context of the Garden of Gethsemane. The Lord is just about to go to the cross, And he takes along with him, right, Peter, James, and John. And Peter, James, and John, while Jesus went off to pray, what were they supposed to be doing? Class? Praying. What ended up happening? Sleeping. Let's not be too hard on them because we're the same way, all right? There are certain times I'm sure we need to be praying and we're sleeping. But it just... I was drawn to that. I was like, here's these guys, right? These three, and wow. These guys, what they got to see in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did separate those guys. You know what's good, though? When you think about that, you have these three guys, and they got to experience those things. Do you know, guys, we have the full revelation of God, and there's not one day that goes by that we can't commune with God. Isn't that nice? And the Spirit lives in us, and the Lord wants us to have that relationship with Him daily. Well, the second observation that I noticed from this passage was that Luke records they went up the mountain to pray. Um, This is one of those points I think that can kind of be overlooked, but I didn't overlook it. I love the intentionality of the Lord. There were no wasted moments in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible records in verse 28, and some eight days later after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. Is that a difficult discipline for you? Any of you want to raise your hand? I'm raising my hand. It's a difficult discipline. Man, I can find about every excuse there is in the book. And do you know what I find sometimes? The Lord really gets me on this. Because I love to study. Man, I love to study. But I would dare say, I need to spend as much time praying as I do study. <laughs> right? I need that communion with the Lord. Well, the Bible tells us, they went up to the mountain to pray, and... Um, that was a pattern in Luke's writing, this issue of prayer. If you go to those specific uh, passages, they talk about prayer, times of prayer. And, and, and Luke really emphasizes this point of prayer. You know, One of my favorite uh, sections is right before the Lord chooses the 12 disciples. Do you know what he does that night? You know what he does? He prays. He prays. And do you know that this pattern that I'm showing you in Luke's writing, this pattern crosses over into the book of Acts. Did you know that? This pattern crosses over in the book of Acts, and I'll let you this afternoon after your second nap study that, right? There is a pattern in Luke, in Luke and there's a pattern in Acts, where Luke writes about prayer. And did you know I know you do. Did you know that in Acts chapter 2 verse 42, do you know what the Lord says His church needs to be doing on a regular basis? You know what the early church devoted themselves to? The apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. Don't you just love all these books out there, how to do church? Sometimes I think the Lord must be going, wow. Wow. I made it real simple. And they still can't get it. And I'm serious about that. I believe the Lord's serious about that. I believe He goes, well, here's my church, and and here's what I wanted to do. I want them to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to teaching for us, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. And somebody comes up with a book and says, I have a better idea. No. There is no better idea. There's no better idea. You know what's missing in a lot of churches today? Teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. It's focused on this activity and that activity and how in the world are we going to grow things? And I mean, I'm thinking, man, Lord, Lord's going, what are you doing? By the way, you want to grow a healthy church? Just another commercial. Start witnessing. Start witnessing. Start witnessing. Where does that come from? Oh, the Bible. I remember Jesus told his disciples to do what? Make disciples. And he told them in Acts, it's recorded what? You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. How in the world do churches grow healthy? I'll tell you how. The body of Christ goes, hey, Lord, I'm going to obey your command and I'm going to share the gospel. There's so many church growth strategies out there. My goodness, if you had a dollar for every one of them! And I'm going, no, no. If I just follow this book, I think I think the Lord gave it to us pretty clear. So I look at this issue of prayer, and I'm like, man, Lord, I know the church needs some help in this area. And can I just say something as a personal testimony? One of the things that the Lord did through a missionary of ours, is use that in my life. And I came back from that mission trip to Thailand, and, and we started praying on Wednesday nights. There's no doubt in my mind that the Lord used, has used those times in the life of this body. No doubt about it. We've seen answered prayer, a lot of answered prayer. And he continues to answer prayer. Well, I like what Martin Luther says about this. He says, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. I just like that quote. Right? I think it's, it's, it's just, I mean, it's kind of out there, but I like it, right? Because it's true. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. I'm going, okay, Lord, there's 24 hours in a day. And by the way, as you look at it last night, we got an extra hour of sleep. How'd you like that? You like that? Or what am I doing with those? hours help me to discipline myself all right well third observation got to move along 1132 some of you already getting hungry third observation Luke records that on the mountain they were literally weighed down with sleep we just talked about them sleeping Garden Gethsemane the Bible tells us that they were literally weighed down with sleep That's what the word means there. When it says, now Peter and his companions have been overcome with sleep. The word means to be weighed down with sleep. Now, don't know why. Um, I have a few thoughts. Could have been the time of day. Maybe it's evening. Could have been the trip. We're going to talk more about that. I mean, which mountain did they go to anyway? Right? We're going to talk about that. So, I don't know. Was it the setting itself? Right, The setting itself, the transfiguration, what took place. I'm not sure, but the Bible tells us that they were weighed down with sleep. So it got me to thinking about, okay, they're on this mountain, but what mountain? What mountain? Which one? Oh, man, I did some research on that, and I had a really good time. Okay, tradition says, just for your information, right? This is all for your information. Tradition says it was on the top of Mount Tabor, Okay. Now, Mount Tabor would have been about 55 miles from Caesarea Philippi where they were. Okay, so are they tired from the trip? Maybe, possibly, because they didn't have Uber, right? That was not available. And so um, they're going by foot. They may have gone by camel. I got no idea. But they went. If if the tradition is right, and they went to Mount Tabor, that's how far it would have been. There's something interesting, though, about Mount Tabor. On the top of Mount Tabor, there was, according to history, there was a fortified garrison on top of Mount Tabor of Roman soldiers. So I'm thinking, well, now that would have been pretty awesome Think about it, because who was, who was ruling at the time? Rome. So it would have been pretty interesting, right, if on Mount Tabor that the father said in the midst of Roman rule, hey, and this is my beloved son and who I am well pleased. And they had this, this the transfiguration transfiguration takes place and and the disciples and Moses and Elijah see the future glory and that's announced right on that mountain Now, I thought that was pretty cool I thought man that would be awesome right so it may have been that Mount Tabor was the mountain but it also may be Mount Hermon now Mount Hermon was a different mountain where Mount Tabor was approximately 1900 feet the peak the tallest point of Mount Hermon was over nine thousand eight hundred feet. Snow-capped mountain, triple peaks. All right. Um, it was only fourteen miles away, and so as you look at the as you look at what's taking place, you go, okay. Well, it may be Mount Tabor, it may be Mount Hermon. But did you know what Hermon means in the Greek? I mean, in the Hebrew? The word Hermon in the Hebrew can be translated as the mountain set apart. Wow. That's pretty awesome. So I'm sitting there and I'm studying and I'm at my desk and I'm like, Lord, I don't know which one, but I I don't know. Both are great stories. Because if it's Mount Tabor, then right there, right in the middle of of Rome ruling, you're, you're putting your stamp on your son. In terms of his life and his future glory. But if it's Mount Hermon, that's fine too. Because the name means the mountain set apart. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. All right? Fourth observation. Moses and Elijah were on the Mount of Transfiguration. We talked a little bit about that um, last week. Did you know that mountains were a huge part of both of their lives? How many of you knew that? Class, did you know that mountains in the lives of Moses and Elijah were important, right? It was just a part of their lives. You remember on Mount Sinai, Moses received what? He received the law, the Ten Commandments, and beyond that, okay? 618 plus commandments. And by the way, when I was studying that and reflecting on that, aren't you glad that we are not under all 618? Whew, praise the Lord for that. And and I'm very glad, however, that the Ten Commandments themselves, there is a moral fiber that runs through that that we need to pay attention to. Right? We do, we do, we do. In fact, do you know that as you're studying those Ten Commandments, the Lord repeats a lot of those in the New Testament and gives even further instruction. So when it says, you shall not commit adultery, what did Jesus say? I tell you that if you look on a woman to what? lust after her, you've already committed adultery. You're guilty. So what did the law do? The law proved man was what? Guilty. So if there's somebody out here who may think they're not, well, the Bible says we all are. That's why the Bible says we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, another great event, you think about Elijah, right? And that bottom one says he met with God on Mount Horeb. So you can read that in First Kings 19. But if you go to First Kings 18, you, you know that story there? First Kings 18, right? Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? And the prophets of Baal and the defeat of the prophets of Baal. That is an awesome story. If you ever, that third nap, after you take that third nap today, read that. It's a wonderful text talking about the power of the Lord. So these guys were familiar with mountains. Absolutely. Um, The Bible tells us in Luke what Moses and Elijah were talking about. The Bible tells us that Moses and Elijah were talking about the departure of the Lord. Um, That word departure, do you know that word occurs in Second Peter, when Peter talks about his impending death, he talks about departure, departing. Because departure, listen, you know people, people in Christian, Christianity use the term death a lot. Will we, well, that person die? Will that person die? Will that person die? And sometimes we use that as we're talking about believers, and that's okay. That person died. Uh, but I, I like to think of it this way, and I, I wish I could train my mind to do this. If that, that person departed to be with the Lord, doesn't that sound better? That just sounds better. And it and actually, is more biblical. Right. Peter was going to depart to be with the Lord, right? Well, the discussion in Luke about between Moses and Elijah was about the departure of the Lord Jesus. It says in 931 of Luke, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, guys, I want you to think about this. So on that mountain, Moses and Elijah are having this conversation about the departure of the Lord. Well, if I remember right, and I think I do, if you look in Luke, the ninth chapter, I gotta go back there, Luke chapter nine, all right? The Bible tells us that just previous to this transfiguration, there's this question that Jesus asked. His disciples. Look at 9, 9.18 of Luke. He says, and it came about while he was praying alone, the disciples who were with him, and he questioned them, and he said, who do the multitude say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter's the spokesman. We're going to find that out in this, in this message. Peter's the spokesman, and he says, you're the Christ of God. Right, But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Here it is. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And then a few days later, there they are on the mountain of transfiguration. And on that mountain of transfiguration, listen to me. You know what's so beautiful about the conversation between Moses and Elijah? When you see that conversation, that's not the end. Right? That's not the end. Oh, my friends, that's not the end. So what, what, what's being declared on that mountain? Victory! Because the picture is of what? At the transfiguration, the picture is of Christ coming in his what? His Glory! Man, I got all bothered when I was reading that, studying that. I just about jumped up down in my office. I'm like, man, Lord, there's so much going on on that mountain. These guys are talking about your departure, which includes your, your death and your burial and your resurrection. But they are also able to witness on that mountain the future glory. You say, what's the big deal? That's our hope, right? That's why when we get to Easter, and we shouldn't just reserve it for Easter, we preach about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. We know He's alive. And on that mountain, my friends, listen to me, not only did they hear that conversation that was going on about the departure of Christ, not only had Christ revealed that to them earlier, but on that mountain, they saw the future glorified Christ as he would be in his kingdom. You say, ah, that's just a mountain. Oh, my friends, that's not just a mountain. There was a lot going on on that mountain. I just had a quote by John MacArthur. He says, departure here refers to Jesus leaving this world through which he would bring salvation. This departure was fulfilled in Jerusalem. All right, I got one more observation. Man, time's already 1143. I'm going to stop, all right? I got, but I got to give you this one more. I am. I'm stopping. Last observation. Moses and Elijah departed this world in unusual manners. Did you know that? I'm just one of those teaching guys. When I start getting in a passage, man, I was in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I'm going, man, I got to give them all this. See, because if I don't give it all to you, then I'm just giving it part to you. That's not any good. I got to give them all of it. So as I begin to dig under the pages, I'm like, hey, Moses and Elijah, they departed this world in in an unusual manner, the Bible tells us. You remember? The Bible tells us that Moses was buried in a place known only to God. I'm going to tie something together for you in a minute. Pretty interesting. The Bible also tells us that Elijah was taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. 2 Kings in the second chapter in the 11th verse said, Then it came about, as they were going along and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by what? A whirlwind to heaven. What an experience. You say, why in the world would you even mention that to us, Thad? Here's the answer. The book of Revelation, the Bible tells us that during the tribulation period, there's going to be two witnesses. Now, remember I was in school and I was being taught. So the professors gave us two different options. And they said, well, it could be Enoch because the Bible says Enoch, what? He walked with God, right? And all of a sudden, he's no more. I mean, can you imagine what that conversation must have been like with those people? Where anybody seen Enoch? <laughs> the best game of hide and seek you ever play, right? He's gone. What well, could be Enoch? It, 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 it could it be Enoch and Elijah. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And I don't know the answer complete. I don't know for sure, but I kind of, as I've been studying this, I've been kind of leaning right where I was leaning toward Elijah and Enoch. I'm kind of leaning toward Moses. And I'm going to tell you why. Moses and Elijah's conversation was about what? The departure of the Lord. They knew about the coming of Christ and all that would be fulfilled in Christ. Well, if you're in a tribulation period and you're witnesses, What are you talking about? Christ? And what Christ accomplished? Moses and Elijah? They apparently had a good knowledge of that on that mountain. But Moses and Elijah were also privileged on that mountain, weren't they? To see. Because the Bible says they were in their glory. And the Bible says when Jesus was transformed, right, Those disciples and Moses and Elijah saw Jesus in his glory. So what? Man, I just look at that and go, yeah. Yeah, they're going to talk about Christ and what his death and burial and resurrection accomplished. But they're going to have also this vision, right, of truth that took place on that Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was transformed and was seen as he would be in his future glory. So if you're walking through that tribulation and you're Moses and Elijah, you can go, yeah. I saw him as he will be. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. So I don't know where years ago I was kind of leaning this way. I'm leaning this way now. Guys, I want to tell you something. You know what this illustrates for you? There's nothing better than studying the Word of God. Nothing better. And I know it's 11:47. Did anybody bring a sack of lunch? No, I'm kidding. What? we're going to close guys I want to close with this thought now I'll come back to it next week but on that mountain of transfiguration we're going to see that we're going to get to that outline next week and we're going to look at what was seen and what was said and what was heard but I want to leave you with this verse because we talked about in the beginning do we have an awe of the Lord in our lives I want you to go with me to to the book of Romans. There is, in chapter 12, that same word, metamorphosis, used in chapter 12 of the book of Romans, verses 1 and 2, where the Apostle Paul writes these words, I urge you, therefore, who? We are brethren, believers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. We'll talk about more of that next week. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then he says, and do not be what? Conformed to this world. But here it is. But be transformed. Same word. Be transformed. Be changed by the how. How is one changed? by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Guys, I've got good news for you. As we walk through this life and we face the challenges that every day presents, if you're in Christ, you don't walk alone. And if you're out there and you're sitting out there and you're going Lord, what do you want for me? Here it is right here. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You say that, how in the world am I going to be transformed? How, how does the transformation of my mind take place? Well, I'll tell you what. If you spend time in this book, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be a transformation, there's going to be change. Because the Bible is living and sharp and it penetrates. As far as joint and marrow. I don't know what you're going through today. I have no idea. But I know this that all of us need to stand daily in awe of God. And what's help what's going to help us do that is being engaged every day, every day, every day in the Word of God. You know, every week we come to this place, and when you walk out the door. You can say these words, I went to church today. Well, the better phrase is, I've been with the church today. I've been with the church today. Where the Lord has used people, because that's how he does it. Where the Lord has used the body of Christ to interject things in my life that I need from his word. That will help me live day to day for his glory. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I, I thank you so much that that we get to to study, um, that we have the freedom to do so. I think about Peter's defense here, and he's writing this letter, and, and he loves these believers so much. I mean, he's dedicated even to his very last breath. But he also knows that there's the enemy out there who is Satan. And just like he wrote, he is a lion, a roaring lion, seeking those to devour. Well, we're vulnerable to being devoured if we don't know your word, if we're not standing on the truth. I just don't even think we can even begin to understand the depth of what was on Peter's heart because he knew that these scoffers were present. And if they could break down this doctrine, then they were vulnerable in every area. Lord, I'm thankful to know that at the end of his argument, he says we have the prophetic word more sure. or we have your full revelation. Help us not to believe that we can defend apart from your word. Help us to remain and rest on your word. And Lord, as we started out, I pray that we would be in awe of you. Lord, I know this practically, that if I'm in your word every day, that's gonna help. And so I pray that you would help us by your spirit to do so. In the name of Christ, amen.